One of our great Christmas hymns, uh, and I'm sure we'll sing it multiple times this season, How Great Our Joy. And I love that because it has sort of this loud part and then this soft part, loud part and soft part. But the chorus says, How great our joy, and then great our joy. Joy, 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 and then joy, joy, joy. You can probably hear it in your head. Praise we the Lord in heaven on high, and then praise we the Lord in heaven on high. But what I love about that chorus is that it really just focuses in on the reason for the joy in that hymn, which is Jesus Christ. That the incarnation of God manifested in the flesh really is our highest viewpoint of joy. Christ is our ultimate source of joy. We have a relentless pursuit of joy, and the fastest way to get there is through Christ. Hebrews 12 verse 2 reminds us that we are looking to Jesus. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8 to remember Jesus. And so we see this all throughout Scripture, and it's especially our privilege as we go through the Gospel of John that it's just saturated in Christ. And it helps us really with great ease fulfill Colossians 1.28, which is to proclaim Him, to proclaim Christ. The second person of the triune God who became like us in all respects except for sin. He really continues to be the champion in our pursuit of the peace that passes all understanding, the joy that's available only to the one who would believe in Christ, the abiding confidence in the sovereign providence of God. And we've been in the last few weeks exploring various aspects of our Lord Jesus to bring to our remembrance joy. It brings us joy. And now we come to something. I think as we remember this, this brings confidence. It brings certainty. It brings that understanding that we're on the right team, so to speak. It brings increasing peace. It brings a certain, if I could put it this way, a gleeful resignation to the perfect will of God. And so what we want to look at today is the fact that we can be joyful as we remember Christ's credentials, his qualifications, his credentials, that Jesus Christ is infinitely qualified to be our Savior, that when Isaiah calls Jesus Christ wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these aren't just honorary titles. They're actual descriptions of who he is, of his character, his attributes, his abilities. And so today we continue in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, and we're looking at verses 14 through 24, and we're really just going to see some stunning words from Jesus Christ, irrefutable logic, undeniable authority. And so as we look at this text, we'll very simply divide our thoughts into three credentials of Jesus Christ, three demonstrated credentials of Jesus Christ. And here they are. He is the ultimate spokesman. He is the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate fulfillment. And we'll walk through those one at a time. But we need to kind of set up our our time frame and our context here, you recall that between chapters 6 and 7, there's about a six-month gap, that there's a time period that goes by. Chapter 6 happened in April, right before Passover. Chapter 7 happens in October, right before and now during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we spent extensive time last time looking at the feast, and I think it's important for us to recall some of those details. The Feast of Booths was one of three times in the year that a Jewish male was required uh, by the law of Moses to travel to Jerusalem to sacrifice and to celebrate. 
And it was a a week-long festival that commemorated the faithfulness of the Lord in Israel's travels in the wilderness all the way 1,400 years earlier. And so it's a remembrance. And you recall that families would build these little shelters, these booths, these kind of almost camping shelters to recall the time when their forefathers were in the wilderness and God was caring for them. But we also said that the Feast of Booths has great implications for the future, for the coming of Messiah. Every night during the Feast of Booths, there would be a water-drawing festival from the Pool of Siloam. It was accompanied by many musicians, by a Levite choir. There were even dancers. And then there was the lighting of three 75-foot-tall candles, these giant candles. You could see the light all over the place. And this was to celebrate in anticipation, a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 12, 3 through 6 that we looked at last time, that when the waters of salvation come to Israel, Messiah would reign in their midst. You recall that at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus, his unbelieving brothers, had tried to tempt him to go to the festival to do mighty works and to prove his power and his right to rule as Messiah, to essentially take his place as the rightful king. They didn't believe he could actually do that, but they were just challenging him, go do it. This is the time to do it. But Jesus would have nothing to do with that. He wasn't a political Messiah who came to rule. He was a saving Messiah who came to save He didn't come to rule a self-righteous people. He needed to save the self-righteous people before he could rule them. And so Jesus let his family go down to the feast without him. And he traveled alone. He was unseen, just blending into the crowds when he arrived at the first day of the feast. We saw in verse 11 that the the Jews, specifically the leaders of Israel, were seeking him. Why? Verse 1, to kill him. They rightly thought that if Messiah was going to show himself, or rather the the man who says he's Messiah is going to show himself and make a move, make a power grab, it's going to be during the Feast of Booths. So they're ready for him. It'd be a perfect time for Jesus to make that move and they're ready to go. I think actually if Jesus had come at the same time as his family and everyone else coming in, the hundreds of thousands of people coming from all roads toward Jerusalem, what probably would have happened would have been kind of a a premature uh, triumphal entry that Jesus may have been crowned king briefly and may have been pushed into a situation of conflict that he wasn't ready for. It wasn't time for that. And so he didn't come on the first day. He just slipped in. And he was, for at least a few days, just almost invisible, just blending into the crowd. But one day, he showed up at the temple. We pick this up in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I don't know about you, but that tells me that Jesus is way smarter than I am. This is absolute genius. And he shows himself to be worthy of being the spokesman of God. And in fact, that's the first of our three credentials of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate spokesman. He's the ultimate spokesman. And we see this in verses 14 through 18. Jesus didn't come with a strategy that was proposed by his unbelieving brothers to, to come and, and to do signs and wonders. He came teaching, teaching the word of God, teaching the gospel. Now, other rabbis would teach their disciples in the temple. This was normal. People expected that. And the Jews, two different groups being defined by the Jews in this phrase here, the leaders who were listening, those who were waiting for an opportunity to kill him, and then also just the crowds in general, they marveled, they're astonished, they're in shock. But what were they shocked at? Well, they said, how is it that this man has learning? Literally in Greek, how does this man know his alphabet? How does he know his letters? Now, it could mean, how does he even know how to read and write? That's probably not what this means. Uh, The basic knowledge of reading and writing was pretty common with Jewish males. They were educated as young children. But what is it that they're so amazed at? What, What is shocking them? Well, yes, there's hundreds of thousands of people there, but people know families. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Kern County, and I'm amazed at how many people I run into that I know all the time. This happens. They knew who he was, and they're putting two and two together, and it's not adding up. Jesus has been a carpenter in his father's business since probably the age of 10. He hasn't been to a rabbinical school of learning. He hasn't gone to an academy. He hasn't sat at the feet of a great rabbi for years and years. Until a couple of years earlier, Jesus was the town carpenter in Nazareth. That was it. Now, probably none of them remembered an incident that happened 20 years earlier, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus and his younger siblings to Jerusalem for Passover and when the family began their trek back to Nazareth, they thought Jesus was with other family members, but he had stayed behind in Jerusalem. When they finally found him, guess where he was? Same place he is here. He was in the temple. Luke 2, beginning of verse 46, records, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they were amazed all the way back then. But here he is again, fast forward 20 years, and he's teaching the multitudes. He's proclaiming with great astute and astute understanding the, the truths of the kingdom of God, and he's daring and declaring to be speaking for God. And so the response to the murmuring and the shock at the level of his understanding is Jesus answering what's in their minds. So he says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine. He's repeating what his father has told him. And this is huge. This is what set him apart from all the other rabbis, all the other scribes, all the other teachers. When a student studied in a rabbinical school, What they were taught to do is that every time you teach, you have to substantiate what you're saying with as many other rabbis of the past as you can, uh, as is possible. Then in other words, if I can tell you 10 people who believe the same thing I do, that must make it true. 
And so they would say, as Rabbi Hillel has said, and kind of feel proud about that, or as Rabbi Shammai has said, as if I'm a, a part of his school. And so the more of those that you could quote, the more authority you had. But that's exactly the difference that the people saw in Jesus' teaching as opposed to every other teaching they'd ever heard. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's Gospel records that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. In other words, Jesus wasn't quoting sources. He is the source. That he just said, here's what I say. Didn't quote anybody else. Now, in the minds of the Jews, to not quote other sources was to show arrogance, to show an independent spirit. And so Jesus denies that potential charge. He said, my teaching is not my own. I'm not just making things up. But neither is he quoting this chain of rabbis from the past. He's revealing that the knowledge he has is mandated from the Father. Now, how does this make him like a prophet of God? Well, he is proclaiming the word of God and that makes him like a prophet. But the prophets had to do something that Jesus doesn't have to do. All the prophets before Jesus would proclaim, would cry out, would shout, thus says the Lord to assert that their teaching is divine in origin. But Jesus is claiming much more than this. He's not just repeating the father's words. He's one in essence with the father. He and the father are one John 5.19 says, Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So you see, Jesus goes far beyond just saying, Thus says the Lord. He can say, as he does 25 times in John's Gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you. And so he is his own authority, even though he's coming at the will of the Father. Now in verse 17, Jesus gives the human perspective that anyone who truly seeks to do the will of God, knows that Jesus is sent from God. So what does he mean by this? Anyone seeking the the will of God knows who I am. Well, first of all, you have to understand that the way that a Jewish rabbi uh, consortium or, or a group would get together and determine what was true and what was false was by who could argue the best, who could shout the loudest, and who could last the longest in a big giant debate. And the last guy standing, when everybody else just said, ah, forget that, and walked away, the last guy there, they said, well, he must be right. They would debate and they would argue. But Jesus is bypassing all of that. He's he's not debating. He's not arguing. He's already said that human free will about his claims can't help you. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what is he saying? Well, verse 17 when he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he, know, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. He's saying from a human standpoint, the one truly seeking to do God's will is a person of genuine internal faith. And they're going to know who I am. You're going to know me. Uh, to put it in New Testament Christian terms that, that we would recognize, the person who recognizes that Jesus speaks with the authority of heaven is the Christian the one who's saved. He possesses a a genuineness of heart toward the Lord and a deep yearning passion to obey the Lord that the one truly seeking God instinctively recognizes that Jesus comes with the authority of the Father. It isn't the rabbi's usual method of debate and argument that brings that recognition. 
They understand the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. He's proclaiming what his father has told him, and he's doing so with great authority, great uh, overpowering power, and he doesn't enter into debate. You notice that Jesus doesn't really argue with people. He just slams their arguments into the ground and buries them. His debate and argument is that God is not an object of debate. He's not an object that we discuss, that we examine, that we dissect, that we evaluate. We don't stand in judgment over God. Jesus is warning that God will stand in judgment over you. That God is not a thing to be debated. Jesus is claiming here that the truth of God is self-authenticating. That if you know I am the Christ, then you will know that everything that I'm saying is true. And if you know that everything I'm saying is true, you will know that I am Christ. Well, isn't that circular reasoning? Well, when you're at the top level of reasoning, yes, it is, and it doesn't matter. Christ and Scripture are self-authenticating. I hate the phrase, science confirms the Bible. As if the Bible is coming up to science, oh, thank you so much for confirming me, because without science, nobody would have ever known that the Bible is true. Ridiculous. Jesus would never go to the rabbis and say, thank you so much for a couple of you guys supporting me here. You know, that really helps everybody know that I'm true. It's like, I don't need that. I came from the Father. And if you know that, then you know that. And you're a follower of him. The truth of God is self-authenticating. Why? Because it is the truth of God and appeals to no other higher authority because there is no higher authority. And the one seeking God will be given understanding. And then Jesus drives the kind of final nail in his claim to be the ultimate spokesman for God. In verse 18, he says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus isn't seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of his Father. In all his teaching, in all of his miracles, Jesus never sought his own self-promotion. I mean, think about what he could have done for himself. Think about how well he could have fed him and and, and the the apostles. I mean, at the feeding of the 5,000, you know, it's interesting that there's no record that Jesus ate anything that he made. He does it for others. He's authenticating who he is, but he's never grabbing power. He's never trying to start some sort of movement that would lead to his own coronation. It's only when he's hours away from the cross does he pray this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may what? Glorify you. But it's only right at the cross. And what was this glorification? Was it a coronation as a king? Was it a victory party for the Messiah? No, the glorification of the son, ironically, begins with his cruel death on the cross. That was his glory. His glory was to obey the father all the way to death. In fact, Jesus declared his own ministry a success. And how did Jesus define this success? John 17, verse 4, I glorified you. That's what made his ministry successful. He glorified the Father. Now, there is an irony at work here. There's a paradox here. The fact that Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father proves that Jesus is not promoting himself and therefore is telling the truth. The fact that he's not quoting other rabbis, that he's not uh, uh, doing what the other rabbis would do proves that he's telling the truth. And by the way, it shows the real reason that his opponents don't get him. They don't understand him. They're not assessing him correctly. They're ingrained with this idea that any rabbi represents his school of thought. In other words, if I could put it this way, that every rabbi sort of played for a team 
and they maybe had some team colors or something like that, that, that you would say, well, I'm a follower of Rabbi Hillel and I'm going to quote him the most, or I'm a follower of Rabbi Shammai. Jesus never said that. He never said, as the good Rabbi Hillel says, or as Shammai said, or as Rabbi Gamaliel, or as Rabbi Nicodemus. What did Jesus do with Rabbi Nicodemus? He corrected him and said, are you not the teacher of Israel and you don't get it? Why would he quote people who don't know anything compared to him? In fact, if Jesus was seeking his own glory, he would have been using the same means that the rabbis and the scribes were using. He would have been arguing harshly. He would have been talking people down, shouting them down. He would have been continually trying to win. But he doesn't. In fact, by this time in his ministry, very often he's teaching in parables. He's teaching in mysteries. What are parables for? Parables are to keep the truth hidden from the unbeliever and to reveal the truth to the one who would trust in him. He's not trying to win a a following. So here we have the great paradox of the teaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He doesn't seek his own glory, but only the glory of the Father. And by doing so, he ultimately gets all the glory as the ultimate spokesman for God. All that he is preaching, he heard from the Father John 12, verse 49 says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And yet, because Jesus is one in essence with the Father, he is the radiance of the glory of God. When Jesus speaks, it is the very words of God representing God coming from the mouth of God. Great paradox there. From God... We not only have the direct earthly words of Jesus, but all the other words of Jesus as well. The inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors. Paul commanded the Colossian Christians to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom in Colossians 3.16. He told the Roman Christians that faith in God comes from hearing the word of Christ. This is the focal point of God's revelation 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4 warns that if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Christ is the ultimate spokesman and to try to disagree with his word is to disagree with God. It's that simple. There's a very clear application here for us. Any human being, saved or not, ignores the word of God to his own parable, peril, He ignores the word of Christ to his own danger. Jesus didn't say, I'm telling you the truth. He didn't just say that. He says, I am the truth. I tell you the truth and I am the truth. I think about this crowd who grumbled. I mean, he was teaching them things they had never heard. He didn't have to quote any sources. It was absolute genius. And yet they just said, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? If you're like that crowd who grumbles about Jesus, and you agree with him, and you challenge him, I have good news for you. You will join them someday. Because as Jesus was being led to be crucified, he told those around him who were weeping for him. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he prophesied the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen just 37 years later. In Matthew 10, Jesus warned the Jews in the parable of the 10 virgins that if they don't follow Christ, there will be a day when the marriage feast of Christ is taking place and they'll knock on the door and they'll say, Lord, Lord, 
open to us. Jesus will answer to the Jews who would not have faith in him. Truly, I say to you, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. All who ignore the word of Christ, his call to repent because of the kingdom of God coming any time, and then it's too late, all who would ignore his words will pay the price. And so if you agree with this crowd who's muttering and grumbling against Jesus, the good news for you is that you'll join them for all eternity in the judgment of hell because that's where they will be if they will not heed his word. And you might say, well, it's a good thing I'm a Christian because I would never just not heed his word. Well, if you are a believer in Christ, you don't get to just cherry pick the areas of obedience that you like, that you agree, agree with. You don't get to rationalize heinous sinful behavior based on what you want, based on how you feel. You don't get to do that. We tremble before the word of Christ. We thank God for the power of the Holy Spirit to obey and to thank God. We thank God for the opportunity to love Christ by obeying him. But we speak often of how much we love the word of God. We don't speak often enough about how much we tremble before the word of God. This is the word of Christ. And we need to tremble before Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We need to tremble before 1 Peter 3 verse 4 which commands wives to possess a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's sight. We need to tremble before 1 Peter 3 7 which commands husbands to live with their wives with understanding and honor and tenderness and gentleness and protection. We need to tremble before Ephesians 5 verse 3 that says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We tremble before Romans 14, 1 through 8, which tells us we don't create false man-made standards of righteousness with which to look down on others. We tremble before Ephesians 5, 19, which commands the church, it is an imperative to vocally, with your voice, sing the praises of God. We tremble before Ephesians 6, 10, which commands that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's not some little journey that we're supposed to get to eventually someday. We're supposed to get strong, be strong now. We tremble before those things. I'm warned, and I hope you are warned, by the life of Achan, the son of Carmi, who violated the word of God, the command of God to the Israelite soldiers who were not to take personal prizes and and bounty from their conquest of, of Jericho. But Achan did, and he thought he could get away with it. And in the presence of all of Israel, God revealed to Joshua that Achan was the guilty party. And Joshua told Achan, really very gently, it almost sounds fatherly, he says in Joshua 7, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan came clean. He, he confessed. He humbled himself before the Lord. Joshua 7, verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. And he confesses, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I mean, that's textbook repentance. He's detailed and he's openly confessing his sin. And we could argue that Achan confessed his sin and probably we could take this as Achan confessing his sin to the Lord as well. 
It's very possible that God justified and saved Achan from eternal punishment. But if you remember the story, Achan's actions had cost the lives of 36 people, 36 Israelite soldiers in the Battle of Ai. They prevented Israel from continuing their mission of conquest in the Promised Land. And so Achan and his family and his animals are all stoned to death. Their bodies and all of his possessions are burned to nothing so that if, you're, if you can fathom this, all evidence of Achan and his family was gone. It's as if he never existed. Why? Because his disobedience had hurt so many lives Listen, the discipline of the Lord for the believer in Christ does not lead, cannot lead, will never lead to loss of salvation, but it can lead to the loss of blessing and it can lead to loss of your life. You think, oh, we're living in New Testament times. God doesn't kill Christians. He kills them all the time. This isn't just old covenant stuff. This is follower of God stuff. Paul proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that some in the church were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. I mean, What's the big deal? We got the communion elements. You know, we put them down here and you get the little bread and the cup. And so I had, you know, a negative bitter thought toward one of my brothers or sisters and I took communion. What's God's response to that? Paul said, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's just for taking communion wrong. We are to tremble before the word of God because Christ is the ultimate spokesman. And to take the word of God lightly is to take Christ lightly. Peter proclaimed in the previous chapter to Christ, you have the words of eternal life. He's the ultimate spokesman. And in his word, we find life and light and joy, joy, joy in that obedience. But Jesus is not only the ultimate spokesman, he's the ultimate judge. And now as Jesus does so well, he turns the tables on those who are accusing him. Never accuse Jesus if you don't want to get nailed back because that's what's going to happen. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now the question here, has not Moses given you the law? It's structured in Greek to create an immediate mental response. It it, it says, has not Moses given you the law? Pause. Everyone says, well, Yes, of course he has. We're followers of Moses. It's created to create this mental positive response. Then he pops that bubble. The reason the people don't get Jesus' teaching comes, that Jesus' teaching comes from God, they've chosen to reject God's will, and he proves this by saying, not one of you keeps the law. You are not followers of Yahweh, so you don't recognize his words when you hear them, because you're not following him. And he nails their hypocrisy. Because none of them would question Moses. None of them would take Moses to task. They all loved Moses. They accepted Moses. In many ways, they they went too far. They even worshiped Moses. In chapter 6, verse 31, they claimed that Moses had given Israel manna in the wilderness. And Jesus corrected them. No, God gave you manna in the wilderness. But even though they say they believe Moses, that we're we're wearing the, the jersey of Moses, so to speak, they won't obey him. And they're seeking to kill Jesus. By the way, if they were consistent, they would also be crying out to condemn Moses as well. But they're inconsistent. And so first, Jesus sovereignly condemns the crowd as a whole. None of you keeps the law. Now, this isn't just a broad theological statement about the doctrine of the depravity of man. 
It's not just a generalization. The sovereign God, Jesus Christ, knew the name, the life, the secret sin of every member of that crowd. And I had this picture in my mind of how cool would it have been if Jesus had just kind of stopped time for a moment. And he could have, and he could have walked from person to person to person. And he could have said, Isaac, you bring your sacrifices year by year and yet secretly beat your wife in drunkenness at nighttime. Miriam, you're quiet and unseen, yet you sneak into the home of your neighbor and you're unfaithful to your husband. Aaron, you can't stop lying. You continually mislead others for your own financial gain. Esther, you, you ruin the reputations of others with your continual gossip and chatter. Do you understand that when Jesus said none of you keeps the law, he was looking into a crowd and he knew you and you and you and you and you and everything that you had ever done to violate the holiness of God. It was not a broad general statement. It was a statement to a lot of individuals. And so Jesus connects verse 17 and 19. Verse 17, the one who would hear and believe Christ is the true believer in Yahweh who seeks to do God's will. And what is God's will for the faithful Jew? Verse 19, to keep the law. That is God's will. It is an act of love given by the saved. Psalm 40 verse 8 makes this same connection. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, we don't get to just say, I love Jesus, but I don't feel like obeying him. That is not an option. But then after condemning the crowd in general, he singles out those in the crowd who have the true murderous intentions against him. And he proves he knows the intentions of the heart. Why do you seek to kill me? Now, most of the crowd, they, they, they made, I would say, a fatal error. And they said, you're demon-possessed doesn't mean every one of them were actually accusing him of being demon-possessed. It just was kind of a colloquialism for saying, you're nuts, you're crazy. That doesn't make any sense. But it would go that direction. After healing a man born blind in John 10, verse 20, many of them said he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? That's after reflecting for a time. It was even worse earlier in his ministry. Maybe the whole crowd didn't think he was demon-possessed, but the leaders who were trying to kill him believed that. Mark chapter 3 records earlier in Jesus' ministry, the Jerusalem council sent a delegation north to Galilee. They sent, him, sent this delegation to Jesus and to the disciples with the express purpose of giving an official pronouncement, an official proclamation of the council of the Sanhedrin on what they judged Jesus' ministry to be. And here is the official proclamation. He is possessed by Beelzebul, the name for Satan, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus proclaimed to that delegation, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and for you there is no forgiveness. He pronounced them guilty of an eternal sin. He already knew who was going to face judgment. He already knew this. He could look into the crowd. He knew every single person there. How does he know this? Romans 2 verse 16 declares that on the final day, the day of judgment, that God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. It is his omniscient knowledge that will give the basis for judgment. Romans 1.14 describes the glorified Jesus as having eyes like a flame of fire, eyes that penetrate into the hearts of men, into the deepest recesses of your soul. Listen, when we talk about Judgment Day, 
That's not a euphemism. That's not a symbolic day. That is a date on the divine calendar in heaven that is coming. It is an actual day. And the center of this event that we call Judgment Day is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see him in Revelation 20 seated on the great white throne of judgment. And so if I'm in a crowd and Jesus tells me none of you keeps the law, the only right response is to tremble before him and say, then what do I do? What do I do? Well, what you do is you trust the fact that you need a substitute, somebody who has kept the law to stand in for you. And that's the offer that Jesus makes. If you haven't submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, I I hope that you would be convinced that he is the ultimate judge. What does that mean? Nothing will slip by him. You won't give a stunning defense of yourself. Romans 3 says every mouth will be closed. Revelation 20 says that every single sin that you've ever committed will be opened in what's called the books, the divine memory of God. You won't rationalize anything. You won't have a defense. There's no appeals process. There's no second chances. He is the ultimate judge. He will stunningly and rightly judge you. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, where do we get true joy? Well, we get it from obedience. We get it from understanding that true joy will continue to elude you as long as you think that Christ looks the other way at certain sins. He doesn't. Yes, judicially, your sins are paid for. Your sins will never be held against you for all of eternity. But that doesn't mean that we sin all the more that grace might abound. It doesn't mean that. All the rationalizing in the world won't sway Jesus Christ from loving you enough to discipline you for unrepentant sin. You want joy? Remember that the watchful, judging, loving, fiery eyes of Jesus are always on you. The one with the eyes like a flame of fire. And he's given you his Holy Spirit so that as you're convicted, you can respond. You can repent. You can do better. You can be more and more like Christ. He's the ultimate spokesman. He's the ultimate judge. But he has one other credential we'll look at here. He's the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment. The Bible is filled with signs and images and promises. And the ultimate fulfillment of these signs, images, and promises is Christ himself We're familiar with the fact that Jesus was a humble carpenter, but we need to also remember that he was the smartest man who ever lived. He had the resources of the eternal knowledge of God at his fingertips at all times. Yes, he's human, but he's also divine, and he brings to bear divine, eternal, omniscient knowledge to any argument. And what Jesus does now, beginning in verse 21 is nothing short of flabbergasting in terms of making an argument for a position. What's the argument he's going to make? Here it is. I am here to fulfill and complete the very things you believe in, and yet you refuse to believe in me. I'm here to fulfill all the things that you hold dear, that you hold tightly to, but you won't believe the fulfillment. He's going to talk about two major signs to the Jews, circumcision and the Sabbath. And to fully grasp his argument, I think we need to actually review the importance of those two signs to the Jews. So let's talk about circumcision for a minute. We need to lay this foundation. Circumcision was given to Abraham in honor of the Abrahamic covenant. This is in Genesis chapter 17. 
The Abrahamic covenant is that covenant God made with Abraham in which he promised Abraham that through his body, through his physical seed, a great nation would come. And then also through his singular seed, an individual man, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so the covenant of circumcision was given, being cut at the very place where the seed of man is passed along. It was a, if I could put it this way, a physical sign of membership with God's people. And so the concept of seed and of being cut, changed, altered, made different was inherent in circumcision. And this was important enough to God to declare to Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He does not want to follow me. And what about the Sabbath? The Sabbath day of rest is a remembrance that God rested on the seventh day of creation. It was given as a part of God's covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant. That was a temporary covenant, now replaced by the new covenant. The the Sabbath was given to Israel as they entered into the promised land. This was new information to them. It was to prepare them for their life in their new home. And you recall that They had been slaves working every day of their lives and now they have this interesting new concept that God gave them, a day off. I mean, slaves don't get days off. But now he introduces this to them. Once they've been rescued from slavery, they were not to work at their jobs. They were not to work at the fields. They were to trust the Lord for that one day of the week. Leviticus 23 tells us it was a day of holiness, a day of gathering for worship. In Jesus' day, when the synagogues were now commonplace everywhere the the sabbath became a time of teaching the law of god to the community of god and so the sabbath became the sign the symbol of the mosaic covenant that they were a set apart people able to rest to rest in god so circumcision the sign of the abrahamic covenant an everlasting covenant that goes on and on it's going on today And then the Sabbath, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, a temporary covenant until Messiah would come, circumcision law says every male eight days old is circumcised. It was considered, listen, it was considered the moment that you became a true Jew was that moment. Circumcision law, every male eight days old. Sabbath law, no unnecessary work given uh, the stipulations given in the law. You were to rest And so there's circumcision law that you're altered, you're changed, you're made different, you're made a part of God's covenant people. Sabbath law, you rest based on God's command. Now Jesus is going to make the case that he's the fulfillment of both of those. And he makes a very careful argument. Look in verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. What is that one work? Well, we're six months Later now, after the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee, in the, in the northern province of Galilee, and now he's in Jerusalem. So what is this one work that he's referring to? Well, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed the man who was paralyzed for 38 years. He healed him in John chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. And when did he do it? Does anybody remember? He did it on the what? Sabbath. He had seven choices, but he had to pick that one. That one work, he says, evokes astonishment. 
Not the astonishment that leads to praise, that leads to glorifying Christ, but the astonishment that someone would actually tell another man to pick up his bed and pick up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath. Shame on you, Jesus, for having him uh, work on the Sabbath, even though you just healed him of being paralyzed for 38 years. You remember what the whole point of that miracle was? It was to demonstrate that Jesus has the ability to heal the whole man, to give him rest from his anguish. Now Jesus moves to the next part of his argument in verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. He says, you're getting upset with me for doing something on the Sabbath. I did it once. You do it all the time. He makes the point that circumcision predated Moses. Remember, it's all the way back in Genesis 17. And then it became formalized as part of the Mosaic law in Exodus 12. And so he's putting Moses kind of in the background to make his point that the law required that you circumcise a child on the eighth day after birth, even if it meant doing it on the Sabbath, even though it's work. So the question is, which law takes precedence, circumcision or Sabbath? Well, he points out they regularly circumcise on the Sabbath because circumcision came before Sabbath law. And so he says, you guys do this all the time. They were formally, supposedly breaking the Sabbath so that they would not break the law of circumcision. They had to make that choice. They did it continually. But Jesus does one miracle on the Sabbath and they get resentful and indignant. We'll return to this. He continues his argument in verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Now, why were they so angry with him about this? Why were they so upset? Uh, The scribes and Pharisees, they would say, look, we've got to circumcise on the Sabbath. Otherwise, we're breaking the law of Moses. But is it really necessary to heal this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years? I mean, it's been four decades. Can he wait one more day? No, Jesus did it on purpose. He healed the whole man. He took care of all of him. He went far beyond just the physical sign of one part of his body. In other words, the, the leaders of Israel would say, hey, we think it's a good thing to do to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day because that makes him a Jew. And Jesus is saying, well, how about doing something that heals the entire person? How about that? And when did he do that? On the Sabbath, the sign of what? The rest of God. The rest that God gives. So what was circumcision about? It was a cutting which altered, changed a person and made him from a physical standpoint a true Jew. But listen to how God defines circumcision and what it really points to, what it's all about. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Cut your heart, be altered in your heart and no longer be stubborn. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. That is the doctrine of regeneration predicted by the way. Physical circumcision made one a true Jew outwardly. But listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 2.29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is, the, is a matter of, guess what? The heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. 
That's what circumcision is about. The cutting, the altering, the changing of the heart of the whole person. What's Sabbath ultimately about? The point of Sabbath was to illustrate resting in the Lord. And we have the benefit of the full scope of the revelation of God in Scripture as we have the book of Hebrews, which fills in an even greater understanding of Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Listen to this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, we've rested from any sense of self-righteously trying to attain the righteousness of God by our own works. We rest. And through whom do we enter this rest? Verse 14, through our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Circumcision points to the ultimate altering of the heart. It was given as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant which promises that one man would come to save his people in the world. Sabbath points to the rest that God gives his covenant people. Rest from sin, rest from anguish, rest from self-righteous works of righteousness that don't do anything. And Jesus sews it all up. He draws it in together. He brings these two, these two symbols that are hundreds of years apart in their origin. He brings them together. And he essentially says, you guys are getting hung up on the fact that I made a man whole on the Sabbath, that I gave him rest from his anguish, that I changed him, that I altered him. He is the fulfillment. He is the true spiritual point. He is the aim of both circumcision and Sabbath, and they missed it. What does he tell them? Does he say, you know, that's kind of a complicated argument. I kind of give you guys a pass on this one. These guys have been studying the Word of God their whole lives. It should have been screaming to them. And so he says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. I put it this way, circumcision and Sabbath are like the movie trailer for the main feature movie. And and they're saying, don't let the main feature get in way of the trailer. We want to see the trailer. In fact, we're we're loyal to the the coming attractions. We're loyal to the trailer. Don't bring the real thing in here. He's saying, you guys are ridiculous. The fulfillment of circumcision, which is so important to you, the fulfillment of Sabbath, which is so important to you, is standing right here. I'm here. And they missed him. And there's a huge lesson for us here. The sign of circumcision was the national identity of Israel. The sign of Sabbath was the national identity of Israel. They were ingrained into the part of, parts of their life that just, just it, it was so part of who they were, part of their identity. But circumcision and Sabbath were never, not one time ever meant to bring ultimate satisfaction. They were meant to point to the one who could bring ultimate satisfaction. They were meant to point to the one who would not just circumcise the body, but circumcise the heart, to point to the one who didn't just give rest from work, but gave rest from pointless good works, which cannot save. The lesson is clear. It is in Jesus Christ that we find ultimate satisfaction. He's the end point. He's the culmination. He's the destination. He's the object of our faith. His credentials are impeccable. They're flawless. They're unimpeachable. They're immaculate. They are above reproach. They are spotless. And listen, I mean, the whole book of John here is about the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
It's about the fact that his credentials are impeccable. They're flawless. They're unimpeachable. I love the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of the Son of God. And it's filled with comparisons. It tells us that he's supreme over all the angels. It tells us that he's supreme over Moses. He's supreme over every human high priest. He's supreme over the great Melchizedek, the priest of God. He's supreme over Old Testament sacrifices. That anything you can throw down here on the table to say, this is what can save me, Jesus is better. Oh, well, this can save me, Jesus is better. But this can save me, Jesus is better. We get this in, in Hebrews 11, the list of great men and women of faith who died not having yet met Christ. And we're told God has provided something better for us. It's better than the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have died in faith in the Messiah that they've never met, a Messiah whose name they didn't even know, since we have their example and they are, as it were, at least symbolically watching us, what's the right response that the author of Hebrews is going to say that we're to have to the impeccable, flawless, unimpeachable, immaculate, spotless, above reproach Jesus, who is the ultimate spokesman, who is the ultimate judge, who is the ultimate fulfillment? What's our response? Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in verse 12, I love this, says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That's joy. To have your drooping hands and your weak knees strengthened. That is joy. And then as a result of your joy and delight in our qualified, credentialed Savior, chapter 13 says, if you want joy, if you want to really believe that, that Jesus Christ is that credentialed, perfect Savior, how do you respond? You love one another. You show hospitality. Honor marriage. Honor the marriage bed. Keep free from the love of money. Remember your leaders who speak the word of God to you. Suffer faithfully. Share what you have. Be generous. Praise God with your mouth, with your lips. Submit to your leaders and obey those who watch over your souls. And what's the result of all of that? Remember how we said that Jesus didn't come seeking his own glory, that doesn't mean he's not going to receive glory. The very last phrase in Hebrews, if we will be those who will honor Christ, the last phrase says that Jesus Christ would receive glory forever and ever. Amen. And if your joy is based on the focal point of Christ and you elevating Christ to the point as total Lord, total Lord in your life, your joy in an eminently qualified Savior is really endless because now you're doing what Christ said to do. At the end of verse 24, judge with right judgment. If I could put it this way, your eternity and your joy hinge on your view of Christ. If you don't believe his credentials, you will pay a price for that. If you do, you receive everything. You get everything. Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, everything that Christ has comes to you. That's an inheritance. 
Remember his credentials. Your joy hinges on it. Our Father, we are so thankful to see the the genius of Jesus Christ. He is impeccable. He's flawless. He's immaculate. He is the fulfillment of all the good things that Scripture says to look forward to. It's, It's all found in Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the fulfillment of circumcision, the fulfillment of Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of everything Moses was trying to teach. He is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets were trying to teach. He's certainly the fulfillment of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who literally pointed to Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's everything. He is our all in all. All we have is Christ. And yet he's all we need. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman here today who has not made Christ their Lord and Savior, who has not received that offer of salvation freely given by Christ. The offer is not permanent. It is temporary. And there will be a day when he will no longer offer to be Savior, but he will only be judge. And so, Lord, we would pray for a man or a woman here, for a child perhaps, who even now the Holy Spirit might perhaps be so gracious as to to blow and to come and to regenerate their hearts so that they might believe. Lord, I know that there are people sitting in this room and listening to this message who have believed they have come to faith in Christ and yet have never really been regenerated. I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts to their own spiritual blindness, that they would come in repentance to the only one who can save, the only one who is the ultimate spokesman for yourself, who has given us the very words of eternal life. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know you as Savior, who know Christ, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, how awful it is to claim to know Christ and yet act in ways that are contrary to that knowledge. I pray, Lord, that you would continue our sanctification, that you would help us to obey Colossians one twenty eight. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want to be mature. We want to be more and more like Christ. We want to live to his glory and to his honor for he alone deserves all the glory and all the honor. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.